welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time to be together. And uh, Lord, we want to be real with you as we get together. Maybe it's hard to be real with each other in church sometimes, but we want to come here and be real with you in prayer right now. Um, you already know what we're like. You know all the ins and outs. You know the secret thoughts of our hearts. And so we want to pray, Lord, with the Book of Common Prayer and just say that we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy law and have left undone the things that ought to be done, and we've done things that ought not to be done. There is no health in us apart from you, O Lord. O Lord, we pray you'd have mercy on us. We pray that you would spare us as we confess our faults to you, even secretly in our hearts right now. Lord, we pray that you would restore us, and according to your promise, Lord, that you would declare us to our hearts, that you would remind us that we are righteous in Christ alone. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God, and that you have sent a solution to our sin. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we're more sinful and flawed than we'd ever dare admit in public, Lord, we are also more loved and accepted by you than we can possibly imagine. And so as we come before you, Lord, uh, forgiven of our sins, we come as your forgiven kids, and we joyfully want to hear from you this morning. We want to bask in your presence. We want to hear your words. We want your life to be spoken into us through your holy word, by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series. It's called Keep Going in First Peter. And we're looking at an area that people often need a lot of help to keep going, which is the area of marriage. And so for a couple of weeks, we're looking at what the Bible has to say about marriage. We just happen to be there in First Peter, moving along. It just happens to be right around Valentine's Day. That was not planned. Um, we just happen to have these decorations. I think there was maybe a, a mother-son ball or something here, maybe. You know, we didn't put these up, but, um, but it's been orchestrated for us. And last week, we looked at the first six verses of 1 Peter 3. So if you want to turn there. Today, we're looking at the seventh verse. So the first three verses are a word to wives. And then the seventh verse, just one verse to husbands. Why do you think that might be? What do you think we only get? Is that why? So it's, it's interesting. The six verses for the ladies, one for the, for the husbands. But it says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What I see here is I see two commands, and then I see three motives. The two commands, do you see them? The two commands is live with your wife in an understanding way. That's the first part we'll look at. And then we'll look at you, want to sh- you need to show her honor. You're commanded to show your wife honor. So first, live with her in an understanding way. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This word here for understanding is more knowledge than um, being considerate. Considerate comes later. But when he says according to uh, understanding here, he's saying according to knowledge. Husbands, we need knowledge to live with our wives in the way that God's commanded us to live. We need knowledge. We need to study. Okay? What do we need to study? We need to study both the Word. You need to study the Word and you need to study your wife. You need to study the Bible and you need to study your bride. You need both, right? You need to study God's Word because you need to study God's Word so you know that God's purpose for your marriage. It's, it's not what the culture would tell you. It's not what you would assume. But what is God's purpose for your marriage? What is God's purpose for your life and for your family? And you need to study God's Word so that you can apply the gospel to your family. So you can learn how to draw your strength from the Holy Spirit. So you can learn how you ought to be praying for your wife. You know, We need to study God's Word. 
We need to study God's word so that we know what's infinitely valuable, namely God, you know, what is ultimately satisfying, God himself. And so we need to study the word, but you also need to study your wife, right? We need to study your wife as well. You need to know her. You need to um, understand her. You need to have knowledge of her. You need to understand her desires and goals and frustrations and strengths and weaknesses and what recharges her and what refreshes her and what drains her and what encourages her. Um, Last week we saw that husbands are called to both cultivate and protect their families. This is more the cultivate part. And you need knowledge for that. And it takes time and effort and skill. I think this is something we don't realize. You say, well, I'm not really good at that. This takes time and effort, and you can learn to have more skills in this area. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, a person's heart is like a deep well. Okay? Your wife's heart is like a deep well. And then it says, but a man of understanding, that's you, will draw it out. Okay? So your wife's heart is like a deep well, and a man of understanding can draw that out. And you need to learn how to draw her out. Don't assume you know her already. I think a lot of, uh, when you first get married, you go, oh, I know her. We've dated for a while. I know her. And then you realize, like, I don't know her. And that's a good place to start. Those of you who have been married for a while and, and you knew your wife before, don't assume you still know her. They change. In your one marriage, you'll be married to four or five different women. <laughs> right? She changes. She's not the same. You need to pay attention. We need to be alert, guys. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. There's an alertness needed. You know, don't be like Adam, who was present but not present. Remember, um, he was give, she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. He's kind of like, you know, I don't know what he's doing, right? But here you have, we need to be alert, not distracted, guys. You need to live with your wife in an understanding way. You've got to be alert to who she is, paying attention, studying her. I knew this guy that he had a moleskin journal that was just to record observations about his wife. You know, you could do that in your phone. You know, things that she likes, things that would be helpful for you to, to remember about her. And you need to ask yourself, because we live in an age of distraction, guys. It's never been easier to be at home and not home. You guys been home and not home? You guys been present and not present? You know, and you might say, well, I just, you know, I need to look at my phone and do this thing. I need to relax. I'm trying to relax. But you're distracted. You need to study your wife. And there are times for that, by the way. I mean, Tasha and I will sit on the sofa and we're both on our things, looking at our screens. It's fine. You know, there's times to do that. But, but is your whole time when you're at home that you're not really there, you're not really watching her, you're not paying attention, you're not studying her. You need to study her. And I need to be really present. Um, to ask yourself, am I fully present? Am I really living with my wife in an understanding way? And, and it needs to be according to knowledge. And so we need both the word, we need to study the word, and we need to study our wife as well. And some guys, they study the word like crazy, but they don't study their wife. It's not useful. Okay, you like you got your awesome theology all together. You got things together. You got all your creeds memorized. You're like you're legit. You know the word like crazy. But you're a terrible husband because you haven't studied your wife. Because the things of Scripture can't be just applied like generally. You don't read like generally what wives need and then give that to your wife. You need to study her, right? Remember with Tosh, we I was talking, reading some marriage book. And it's like talking about how in the evening you need to have this time, maybe an hour, to like hear her thoughts and hear her out and you know, talk. And I said, hey, let's do this. And she's like, can we just read together in the same room? And I was like, yes, we can. You know, but that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to just read together in the same room because, you know, she's not stereotypical in these areas. And, and, and you need to know your own wife. And as I go through some of these things, you need to apply it to your own wife. But then there's other men, they study their wives and they're all about doing things that their wives want to do, but they don't study the word. And so they never really minister to their wives. Good example of that from the Old Testament would be uh, King Ahab. 
King Ahab would do anything Jezebel wanted. <laughs> now, you, don't, you aren't married to a Jezebel, so you don't need to worry about that. But, but you need to study both the word and your wife. And then, of course, some husbands have neither, okay? This is the worst case scenario. No word, no, wife, no understanding of their wives. And so we need to study both. And really what we're talking about here is we're talking about really shepherding. It's a pastoral work that a husband has in his home to shepherd and pastor his own wife. And I don't want to create the the idea that somehow the wives don't do that for their husbands. I mean, Tosh pastors my heart, shepherds my heart more than any other human being does. She knows me the best. She's very wise. She shepherds my heart. But this passage is specifically for husbands. And you need to really pastor and shepherd your wife. Really understand the word, really understanding her, learning how to apply the gospel to encourage her. And this is why, guys, that the qualifications for pastors is mostly home-oriented qualifications. It turns out you need to learn how to shepherd your bride before you're allowed to shepherd Christ's bride. And that's why all those qualifications, except for teaching and a couple others, they're all kind of homeward-oriented ones because really what you husbands have, you've married, you have a wife to shepherd a home to pastor. And, um, and we have some amazing husbands in this church, especially some that are younger. I'm consistently blown away by some of these younger husbands and just their ability to understand their wife and apply the scriptures and just patiently kind of uh, leading their homes. It's incredible. I'm like, where did that come from? You know, that's amazing that you, you know, only married a year or two years, and I watch how you, how you shepherd your families. It's amazing. It's a great place, guys, to learn how to be a husband. The church is, Right. And uh, there's many great ones to learn from here. And if, if you want to meet up with one, let me know, and I will point several of them out to you. I'm not going to like be like a husbanding matchmaking service for you or anything, but what I will do is say, hey, these five guys, grab one of those guys and meet up with him and learn from him what he does because I, I see his life and he's doing it well. Coming to the men's breakfast would be a great place to do that as well. That's coming up on, the, I think, the 23rd, so coming up soon. Um, it was really cool as I was studying this. Um, God's timing was amazing because I had a tax appointment on Wednesday. So for my, cor- I'm a veterinarian. So for my corporation, I had to go down to San Diego do my taxing, which is not lovely, and uh, went down there. But I have this really great tax guy. He's like, he's been. I've known him for like 13 years. He's a CPA. He's a um, and an attorney, Christian guy. And he's just super disciplined. You know, this guy is like amazing. You know, he's in the Word and praying. He gets up at like 5 a.m., super driven about his work. I mean, he's just a machine. And what's really neat, I, I noticed this time, I, I, afterwards I go over and I hung out with both of them at their house. So it's a real personal thing. It's really fun. And one thing I found out is that um, his wife, who was a missionary for several years, I think over a decade, she's been dealing really bad with depression. And this comes and goes with her, but she's in a real bad place with it right now. And they're just trying to tinker with that and figure that out. And, um, and what I found out about this guy, what he does is, so he gets up at 5 a.m. He can't help it. He's up. He's ready to go. He'd probably be in the office at 6, you know. But what he does is he waits because his wife, you know, doesn't sleep well. So he waits till 8 o'clock. So he's up at 5. He waits three hours. And he's doing all kinds of things. I don't know what he's doing. And then he wakes her up, and he goes, and he gets in the Word with her. And so they do, like, um, whatever day of the week it is. So if it's, like, uh, let's say it's the 10th. They would do Proverbs 10, and then Psalm, they do Psalm 10, and then you'd add 30, Psalm 40, Psalm 70, Psalm 100. You know, I'm not going to do this all in front of you, but they got this whole system, right, where he reads the scriptures and prays with her every day. And I'm just like, that is so awesome. 
Because he's a very driven guy. Like, this guy's ready to, like, go. Let's conquer the world. And so he ends up being at work later because he's there to shepherd his wife. And I was thinking how different this is than our culture's consumeristic view of marriage. Right? Our culture's consumeristic view. The vows of our, of our contemporary culture, it might as well be their wedding vows say something like this. I'm in this as long as you meet my needs and help me reach my dreams. Right? Those are the contemporary wedding vows of our culture, right? It's consumeristic, guys. But marriage was designed not to be a consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship, right? It's a covenant relationship. You know the old vows, they say, for better or for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And our culture says, well, it's not fun anymore. You know, this person's not being fun for me. I mean, she's not being fun right now, right? And, and I would just say, well, what did you think marriage was about? Guys, marriage is a lot more about caring for your wife when she has dementia than it is about her fulfilling your dreams. Like, that's what it's about. Guys, life is suffering. And one of the beauties of being married is that you can bear that suffering together. That's the place to start. (laughs) Don't start with, like, he's going to, you know, help fulfill all the dreams I ever had or, you know, those kind of things. Like, life is a covenant. It's a lifelong covenant to serve one another for the glory of God. It's not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant relationship. It's also a cultivating relationship. When you're in a marriage, you're there to cultivate. You're there to serve and cultivate that thing. When we bought our house, um, we moved here because we were going to plant this church. And I bought a brand new house over in Canyon Hills, and when you get the house, it's very nice, brand new, never had a brand new house before, it's cool. Front end, all like irrigated, sprinklers work perfectly, never seen that before, never seen it since. But the sprinklers work perfectly, all the plants are in, like everything looks great, right? And then the backyard, what do they give you in the backyard with the new house? Dirt, yeah, and it's Canyon Hills, like hard as a rock dirt. When you got married, guys, you got the backyard, Okay, that's really important. You got the backyard, and it's like, here, cultivate this. Because some of you guys are in your first year of marriage and stuff, and you're like, nothing's here that I thought would be here. And it's like, yeah, you haven't built it yet. <laughs> like, you, that's yours to build. Here's your blank backyard. Get to work. Don't sit there and go like, this isn't like the, the brochure said. <laughs> like, you're not getting the front yard, right? None of you guys, right? And so that's super important. It's about cultivating, guys. And then some of you guys have been married a while, And now there's lots of weeds, lots of weeds. And like right now, it's raining a lot. And you guys know that in your backyard, if it's not already there, there's going to be tons of weeds, you know. And then you think to yourself, man, maybe I should move. There's weeds all over this backyard, right? That's what you're thinking when you're thinking about your marriage that way. You're thinking things like, you know, man, this isn't what I thought it would be. And maybe I married the wrong person because if I married the right person, this would be easy. Who told you that? Okay, maybe I married the wrong person. You know, God would want me to be happy. God's giving me a peace about leaving. God's telling me I can now move on. Guess what? God didn't say any of that stuff to you. What you're listening to is our consumeristic way of thinking, our consumer culture. Okay, that's, that's not what God's telling you at all. You don't move because your yard's full of weeds. You cultivate, right? You pull weeds. Weeds in your marriage, guys, are a call to cultivate, not quit. And I think that really applies to this with husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. And, and that cultivation takes time. It's farming, guys. It's farming, right? There's tilling, there's seeds, there's water, nothing happens. You water some more, nothing happens. Some weeds come up, you pull them, nothing's grown yet. You water it again, something starts to happen, then it withers, then you water it and it grows some more. I mean, it's farming, right? This isn't like, man, she's, she's, not, she's not the kind of wife that I wanted. Like, you're the cultivator. Secondly, we're to show her honor. Take a look at 1 Peter 3.7. He says, 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So the second command here is to show her honor. And Peter gives three reasons here to show your wife honor. And in my translation, they start with as, since, and so that. Let me read it again and see if you can find them. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, so there's the as, since, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your person will not be hindered. There's actually three good reasons here to show your wife honor. And the first one is, is that she's the weaker vessel. It says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And I know for some of you, you're saying like, oh no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. But not what you think, okay? This is actually not in any way derogatory. This has been taken that way a bunch. Peter's referring to both the husband and the wife, both as vessels or cups or containers or whatever. Uh, the husband being the stronger one, the wife being the weaker one. But guys, weakness in no way implies in here inferiority because what is he saying we should do for that weaker vessel? Show her honor, right? And I'll just show you the way I've explained it to my boys when they were younger about this weaker vessel, stronger vessel thing. And uh, stronger vessel, Nalgene bottle. Okay, we got that, stronger vessel. And then we got a weaker vessel, right? And so what I've explained to them before is that their mother and their sister are like this vessel right here. Let's see if it's a good one. Let's see if it's gonna, it's a good one. Did you know you could do that? Okay, so uh, <laughs> stronger vessel, weaker vessel, okay? Which one do we give more honor to? You know, I talk to my boys and I'm like, you guys, ooh, I just made you do it again. You guys are like these. You can clank into each other. You can treat each other in a certain way. You men, you have friends. You guys get together. You rip on each other for fun. Like that's something you do to show your affection for each other. But you guys are Nalgene bottles, so that's fine, right? Um, weaker vessel right here. Um, this kind of crystal glass thing here. This is something that we, we give more honor to, right? We're more careful with this. We're, um, we treasure this. Now, because it's a weaker vessel, I mean, which one's better? Depends, right? You're going to go hiking? Take this one, right? You're going to have something at home? This, you want this one, right? Which one do we give more honor to? By far this one, right? Give this one more honor. And um, God said in Genesis 2 that he would make the husband and the wife complementary. He says in Genesis 2.18, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Right? Fit for him, like puzzle pieces, right? Different, though. This is an important thing. In our culture, it's like, no, no, no. Everybody's the same. All genders are the same. It's all the same, right? No, God's designed us actually to be different, to be complementary, that the weaknesses of one would, would make up for the strengths of the other in both directions, right? And you guys can think about your own marriage now. God's made you different. He's made you complementary. It was probably something that was very attractive to you in the beginning, and then later it got very annoying, right? But God has made you guys complementary to fit together, not one being better than the other. And it's beautiful, guys. I mean, think about the example of music. You know, we could have everybody up here sing in unison, exactly the same voice. How would that sound? Or we could have different voices, right? We could have complementary voices. We could have something called harmony. And so um, in this way, so you might ask in this passage, well, in what way is Peter talking about the wife being the weaker vessel? And I think that there's a broad thing to get here, which is it's a weakness, any weakness, that the husband is going to be tempted to exploit to get what he wants. Okay, The weakness he's talking here, I think, could be any weakness that you as a husband might be tempted to exploit to get what you want. So we treat her as the weaker vessel. Um, 
if uh, it might be a physical thing, you know, physical power. Most husbands are physically stronger than their wives. Not all, but most, right? And so this would prohibit any kind of physical abuse or physical control, things like that. We do that. We honor women physically in our culture by things like opening doors for them and carrying things for them and filling up their car with gas and things like that. It's not because they can't do those things themselves. They can't open the door themselves. We're showing them honor, right? It's a way of showing women honor. And it could be social power. I mean, in the historical context, uh, the husband in this passage would have tremendous power that his wife doesn't have, right? She'd be the weaker vessel in a, in a social um, type situation. Um, in our culture, husbands often have more financial power than their wives do. Not always. Uh, sometimes the wives have way more earning power. But a lot of times, because the ladies have taken care of the home and had kids and things like that, maybe he has a lot more financial power, and, and husbands will exploit that. You know, they'll exploit that by controlling the money in ways they shouldn't be controlling, treating their uh, wife as inferior and a child, you know, with how they um, don't allow them to spend money and, and, and manage things themselves. Um, some husbands use their financial power by leaving their wives, really common. Middle age, guys my age, decide, okay, you know, now I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm going to find a, a younger woman or whatever. And that's a really common thing in our culture, using that power that way. And so t- treating her with honor as the weaker vessel, that she's financially weaker or socially weaker. Um, Malachi 2.14 says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. I see a lot of that. You know, guys my age being faithless to the wife of their youth. It could be the husband has more emotional power in some way, okay? And uh, important not to stereotype here, very important not to stereotype here, because a lot of marriage material says like, oh, you know, your wife's always going to want to talk, and you're not going to want to talk, and your wife's always going to be so emotional, and you're not going to be real emotional, all that stuff. If that's true, then I'm the weaker vessel, because I'm the one that's like in the car, you know, and she's like, that's nice, that's nice, you know, and, uh, and I'm the tr- emotionally turbulent one, so, but husbands, we do need to make sure that we don't take advantage of our wives and harm them emotionally. And this would prohibit things like angry tirades. I mean, a guy might not be physically abusive, but he might slam doors and throw things and yell and, and create kind of an emotional terror in the home. This would definitely not be honoring your wife as a weaker vessel. Um, this would include um, harsh joking. Okay, harsh joking happens very commonly in the church where a husband dishonors his wife with his humor. Okay, um, you know, making funny jokes, he thinks, about her, her weight or her looks or something about her. And it's a standard thing because every time you get together with them, they do the same routine. And guys, I just want you to know if you're one of those guys, she might be laughing, but she doesn't think it's funny. You know what they call that? Coping. And you don't want to be the kind of husband whose wife needs to know how to cope with you. Okay? And so that would include that. That's not treating her as the weaker vessel. And so treating your wife as the weaker vessel means not using any of your power, whatever it is, physical, social, any of those things, to take advantage of your wife, but rather to use all your power, your physical power, your spiritual, social, financial, emotional, all that power to bestow honor on her. That's what it means to follow this verse, would be to bestow honor on your wife with every power you've been given. And you know what that's called? The biblical word for that is meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is harnessing all the power you have and using it for the advantage of another, not yourself. And that's what we see here. We see meekness. 
you know, treating her as the weaker vessel. I'm using all your power to bestow honor on her. And, and let me just give you a few ways that you can bestow honor on your wife that are from the scriptures. First way would be with your words. Genesis 2.23, remember what Adam says? So he's put under anesthesia, God takes the rib out, makes Eve, he wakes up, and what does he do immediately? He sings a song or has a poem. It's written in a poetic fashion. He says, at last, this is bone, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Think about, guys, how you talk to your wife now versus when you dated her. I think that's a really important thing for us to do. Is it, are we rejoicing over our wives like Adam was over Eve? Um, do it this way. Think about how your text messages are different. Okay? Compare how you used to text her to the way you text her now. Now, when Tasha and I were dating in high school, these were our text messages. I don't know if you've seen these before. There's a certain way to fold these, which I, this is a replica, okay? I didn't bring the actuals because I didn't want them to fall into enemy hands. But... <laughs> So this is a replica, and the way I knew to do this, you can go on YouTube and, and type in how to fold love notes in the 90s, and that's what we were doing. And so it's got this little tab that you pull, right, and then it opens. Isn't that cool? And there's a whole, it's not quite origami, but it's cool. But look at your text messages, the way you used to text her before. I bet their text messages were more fun and flirty, had more gifts in them, had more emojis, right? And now it's like, need anything from the store? Did you pay the house payment? on my way, but it's an abbreviation. It's all that. Look at those things. Those things matter, how you speak to her. Um, Proverbs uh, 31, 29, the husband praises his wife in the gates. He honors her with his words. He says this, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. He, he honors her character by how he speaks about her. Song of Solomon, is full of praise for his wife. It's amazing how much of this is him praising his wife, mainly her beauty and the attractiveness she had. I'm going to give you a few of them. Now, you might need to alter these to make them culturally appropriate. You have to study your own wife and see if she would like this. But Song of Solomon 1 says, O oh, most beautiful among women, your cheeks are lovely as ornaments, your neck like a string of jewels. That's pretty good, huh? You could use that one. Song of Solomon 2, as a lily among the brabbles, so is my love among the young women. I like that one. He's like, he's like saying, he looks at his wife and he says, all the women are like weeds. The other women are like, that's not nice. It's like, that's what you want your husband to see. See her and everybody, every other young woman's a, a weed. Or how about this? Song of Solomon 4, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I like that one. How about this? Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes who have come up from washing, all of them bearing twins. These are teeth. Not one is missing. So he likes that she's not missing any teeth, right? He says it multiple times. I edited out the repetition. Your lips are like scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like half pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone, hanging a thousand shields and all the shields with warriors. That's her neck. You are lovely, beautiful, altogether. There is no flaw in you. You have captivated my heart, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance. How beautiful is your love, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Whoa. 
Song of Solomon 6. You are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem. And this is interesting. Awesome as an army with banners. He likes military stuff, so he's like, you're awesome like a bunch of army. Um, Turn your eyes away from me, for you overwhelm me, my dove, my perfect one. Isn't that awesome? Honoring his wife with his words. Think about that. It gets deeper. How beautiful are your feet and sandals? I like the attention to detail. I think a lot of women would like that. I asked Tosh. They would like their feet complimented. Okay, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. It gets deeper. (laughs) Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of heshbon. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. How beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one. You are all my delight. Don't you love that? Your stature, okay, this is going to get, you know. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its cluster. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Steve Miller Band stole that one for a song. (laughs) Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent. um, Your scent like apples. Your mouth is like the best of wine. I mean, you could spend some time thinking about your wife and honoring her with your words, couldn't you? I mean, there's a whole book devoted to this, right? You honor her with your time. You know, give her your time and attention with and without the kids, but I especially want to emphasize without them, okay? It's very important that you two have times that are only yours, conversations that are only yours, um, things that you do that are only yours, right? Super important. This isn't, you know, marriage is not a group thing, okay? The kids will at times not be allowed into certain things. Like, you should have dates. You know, I was talking to a guy as we're setting up. He has a a, a breakfast date on Friday mornings. It's a great time to do it, right? It doesn't have to be at night. A breakfast date. Um, Any kind of thing like that. Don't let your kids interrupt when you're talking. Super important to teach them not to interrupt because what they're basically being told is whatever you've got is more important than what we have together, and they need to hear just the opposite, okay? Um, you need to make sure that you don't let them sleep in your bed. I know that's controversial, but I would just think it shouldn't be because there is no time, guys, that should just be you like then, okay? And like maybe this kid's going to scream like crazy or whatever. They'll get over it. No kids actually died of screaming. And so um, you could do earbuds or something like that. It's just going to take a while, guys, and then you're going to have your bedroom to yourselves. That's important. Okay? Super important. Remember that. You just have not had kids yet. There should be a life that you guys have together that's just between the two of you. In um, Robinson's book, Lila, it says this, Lila had no particular notion what the word married meant, except that there was an endless pleasant joke between them that excluded everyone else, and that all the rest of them were welcome to admire. I love that. An endless pleasant joke between them that excluded everyone else, and that everyone else was welcome to admire. Honor her with your time and attention. Honor her with your money. You know, a lot of times with guys who have been married for a while, oh, you know, I'm trying to pay down debt, I'm trying to do this. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying you have to spend the whole bank account, but you need to honor her with your money. You know, pursue her like you used to. Um, if you don't know what to get her, like snoop on her Amazon list, uh, snoop on her Pinterest. That's what that thing's for, right? Um, you know, just watch her as you walk around the store. Honor her with your money. So this call to honor your wife as a weaker vessel is really a call to honor her because she's a woman, not a man, right? That's what it's really about. This word here for woman is actually a rare Greek word, and it literally means the feminine one, 
Okay, the feminine one. And what he's bringing out there is that her femaleness alone should make you want to honor her. Like you honor, you know, crystal over an algae bottle, right? God gave you a woman, husbands, which is crazy. Why would he give you a woman? I don't know. You know, do you ever marvel at that? You know, have you gotten so, like, used to having a woman that you're, like, not amazed by that? He gave you a woman. It's insane. Honor her. Secondly, honor your wife because she's your co-heir. Take a look at the verse again, verse 7. He says, honor her since she is heir with you of the grace of life. Guys, I don't know if you realize this, but both men and women were designed by God from the beginning to reign over creation. If you look at Genesis 1.27, it says, God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And listen to this. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. You guys, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, but um, you guys remember how the, the kids, so there's, um, there's Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy, right? And they're just regular kids at home, right? Just regular kids, you know, like any other kid. What are they in Narnia? Kings and queens. What, what C.S. Lewis is getting at there is a real truth, which is that we were created to rule over creation for God. Isn't that amazing? You probably don't hear that very much, right? And th- that first man and that first woman, they lost their throne to Satan through their disobedience in the garden. But Christ has come. He's been tempted in every way as we are. He's, he's been obedient. And then through his death and resurrection, he has actually won back our reign over creation. So when Christ returns, he's going to banish Satan from this world, make all things new. And then his people, his redeemed people, are going to reign as kings and queens over the creation as God intended. Just like the kids in Chronicles of Narnia. You know, that their true identity is their identity in Narnia. That's our true identity is that future rule that we're going to have. And I just want to say based on that, husbands, your wife is not a commoner. She's not a commoner. Don't treat her as a commoner. Your wife is kingdom royalty. Would you treat her differently if you knew that she was kingdom royalty? She's kingdom royalty. Treat her as the queen that she is going to be in the world to come. Because it says she is an heir with you of the grace of life. She's a co-heir of the throne with you. Treat her as a queen, right? And then lastly, show your wife honor. This is a fun one. Show your wife honor because God's going to defend her. Take a look at verse 7. It ends with a threat. I love it. It's great for men. I will end by threatening you. Show honor to her so that your prayers will not be hindered. Interesting. Didn't know stuff like that was in Scripture, huh? This is a household code. If you look up in chapter 2, it talks to servants. Then it gives, it goes, this is what servants do in the household. This is what wives do in the household. This is what husbands do in the household. And husbands are the only one in the list that have any kind of power in that society, right? And so um, what he's doing here is he's reminding husbands that they don't have absolute power in their homes. Because I think that's a mistreatment of what the Bible talks about is a husband being the head of the, ha- of, the, of the wife, and the head of the family, and the leader and all that, is a husband can say, okay, I'm the king of my castle, I get my way. This passage is to say that they, are, they do not have ultimate authority. It, it reminds them that they've been given this leadership in their homes, not to get their own way, but to get God's way in the family. They don't have absolute power. It's into this verse. It reminds them that your wife, guys, has not been left to your mercy. You're actually been left to God's mercy. And so he says, if you don't honor your wife, he will not honor your prayers. Still saved, not a very good prayer life. Powerless. Why? Because I'm not honoring my wife. I wonder how often, husbands, have we thought about that? Think, man, my prayer life kind of stinks. Like, it just feels like I'm just 
talking right in the ceiling. And this wouldn't be the only reason, but it should be a differential. It should be like, am I honoring my wife? Because he says here that if you don't honor her, that your prayers will be hindered, right? Don't assume that you will receive spiritual good if you're treating your wife earthly bad. And I don't know if that's good English, but I like how it sounds. Don't assume you'll receive spiritual good if you're treating your wife earthly bad. There is a third person in your marriage, God, and he, he will defend her if you dishonor her. And I think that should strike a significant amount of concern in your heart. Fear, right? Fear that if I don't treat my wife the way God's called me to, if I don't honor her, that God will defend her from me. That there'll be consequences. And sometimes when a spouse, either a husband or a wife, gets tired of cultivating their marriage, I've heard him say this a bunch in counseling with us, say, I just need to work on my relationship with the Lord right now. I'm kind of done with her, kind of done with him. I need to work on my relationship with the Lord right now. Which what they're saying is like, I'm tired of serving my spouse. I'm just going to serve the Lord now. This verse says that it doesn't work that way, right? God doesn't meet us in our prayers when we left the garden that we're called to cultivate. He will meet us in the garden that he's given us, okay? He will meet us there. And the cool thing is when he does meet us there in prayer, in the garden we've been called to cultivate when we haven't just run away, is, is God will meet us there with work gloves, right? God's going to meet us there to help us. And so I just want to end with this encouragement. Let's trust him. Let's trust him. Let's keep tilling. Let's keep planting. Let's keep watering. Let's keep pulling weeds. Even if it doesn't look like anything's working, let's trust him. Let's trust that he's going to be there. God himself will meet you there. The same God who came as the ultimate husband for his bride. You know that about the Lord? Jesus is, guys, the ultimate husband of 1 Peter 3, 3, 7. The ultimate husband of 1 Peter 3, 7. Jesus honored both the word and his wife. You know, we talk about husbands should, should study the word and they should study their wife. Jesus came as the one who honored perfectly both the word and his wife, the church. God the Son came into the world to obey God's word and to serve his wife, the church. God, uh, Jesus was faithful to God's word. Hebrews says this, that when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus came to die on the cross and do all these things, to be faithful to God's word primarily, to be faithful to God. His life and death were an act of obedience. But he also came, guys, to be faithful to his wife, to rescue us in our weakness. You talk about weakness. In the greatest display of meekness, guys, Jesus used his great power not to serve himself, but to serve us. If you look in Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, that's ultimate meekness. That's ultimate, you know, taking all the power that you have to not serve yourself, but to serve us on the cross. That's what Jesus did. And then he's also a great example of the Song of Solomon. Okay? I know you made a face. It's a little weird, right? He's also a great example of bestowing honor and praise on his bride. He's a great example of that. Check this out. He said, he, he has clothed us with his righteousness and covered our sin with his perfection such that now he rejoices over us. Did you know if you're in Christ that he rejoices over you? Um, you receive all kinds of undeserved honor and praise from God because you're in Christ, right? Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
Isn't that awesome? Do you feel that way? In the gospel, trusting in Jesus, that you're in Christ such that God rejoices over you? Or Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you think of that? Do you think of that? that that's what you have in the gospel, that you are a part of Christ's bride, such that he, he rejoices over you because your sin's been removed, Christ's righteousness has been credited to you, and now he rejoices over you with loud singing. Does the God you know sing? Does he sing over you? Does he rejoice over you? Husbands, you need to think about this because you may be stingy in your praise, you may be stingy in your affirmation because you see God as stingy, right? You may feel unforgiven. You may feel like you've been tossed to the side. When a man sees that he is being sung over and that God rejoices in him, he is way more likely to rejoice over his wife. Because you don't deserve any of those praises, right? That's all grace, right? He's honored his bride with undeserving grace. And so that um, makes him able to do it as well. Where did we see this kind of singing over a bride first? Genesis 2, right? In the garden. And God is that ultimate one who rejoices over his bride. That's what the gospel tells us. It tells us that he has received us with joy because of the righteousness of Christ. That he has made us worthy in him such that he rejoices to have us in his presence. That's the good news. And I just want to ask you this morning, all of you, have you received that? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ to receive that? And then I want to ask you, if not... Why in the world not? Seriously, you really have to ask yourself, like, well, you know, I'm not really into religion, and, you know, I, I don't know about this Christianity thing, and I met a lot of hypocrites, and blah, 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 and it's like, no, 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 no. You see what I said? Like, that you could trust in Christ and be covered with his righteousness, that God sings and rejoices over you with his grace, undeserved, but real. And you could have that if you would just turn from your sin and trust in him. And, why wouldn't you do that? You really have to ask yourself, why would you love your sin so much more than that? What do you have going on out there that's better than this? You have some relationship, somebody's going to treat you better than the singing God, right? There's nothing better than this, guys. There's no reason not to repent of your sin and trust in him. And, and as we take the Lord's Supper, guys, we're going to reflect on the fact that, that God the Father assures us that our sin is covered. That's what he does with this. This is not our pledge to him. This is his pledge to us to assure us that he has covered all our sin, that we are forever his, and that he rejoices over us with loud singing, totally by grace. And then through this bread and this cup, somehow in a mysterious way, the Holy Spirit actually feeds our souls on the real presence of Christ. So that happens through this. And what our response to that is thanksgiving. You know, that's why this is called, and historically in some churches, called the Eucharist. It means thanksgiving. We're just to come forward and receive this with thanksgiving and gratitude. If you've received the Father's gift of Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, then come forward and receive this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. And that you've even designed this whole marriage thing just to be a picture of that. She's just amazing. It's amazing that you didn't, you know, create marriage and then later go like, oh, that would be a neat symbol for the gospel. But you created marriage with the gospel already in mind. 
And so, Father, we have a way to think about it. We have a way to think of a husband who is meek and uses his power not to take advantage of his bride, but to serve his bride. And we see that in Jesus. And we have the ability to see what a husband would be like that really affirms and praises and rejoices and enjoys his wife and know that we as your people have that. Lord, we pray that we leave with a heart of gratitude. Lord, for all those who have turned from their sin, they repented of their sin, um, I pray, Lord, that you would remove all guilt, all burden, and restore to them the joy of their salvation. Restore to them this vision of you singing over your people, rejoicing in your people, loving your people, desiring to draw your people in. And I pray for anyone that's here that, that has not trusted in your son, Lord, that they would flee from the wrath to come. That they would want to be covered. They would want to be covered with your son's perfect righteousness. Show them how exposed they are before you right now. And then invite them in, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.